Chapter forty one of Just As I Am. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Just As I Am by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter forty one. That would be an unholy alliance. It was midsummer, and the lanes and woods round Osthorpe were in their flush of summer beauty, the freshness still upon the green, the glory and colour of the hedgerows at their brightest. Honeysuckles hung their sweet blossom above the ferns on every bank, and all the little homely wildflowers, dear to cottage children, dappled the grass with indescribable varieties of colour. Here spread a purple clover field, there the white blossoms of a bean field shed their delicate perfume on the warm air. Tangley Common was a blaze of golden bloom, and Tangley Wood a deep, dark land of shadow, pleasant to rest in after the vivid world outside. Here Dulcie came often, sometimes with Frances Grange and sometimes alone. Near though the wood was to the manor-house, she had never yet encountered Morton or his sisters, or even Lizzie Hardman. She knew their habits, and that they rarely left the manor-house gardens except to ride or drive or go to church. Idle meandering in the wood had no charm for either of the sisters. Horatia was too practical and business-like, and Tiny too lazy. And Morton, the ambitious, hard-working Morton, was of all men the least inclined to waste his time in dreamy ramblings under beechen boughs. Dulcie had seen Lucy Green several times since their first meeting. She had found the poor, sickly mother sitting on her favourite bank, sometimes struggling with a little bit of needlework, while her children sported about among the fern, as happy and careless of the future as young fawns or frisky little rabbits. But now that the shelter of the beech boughs had grown darker and thicker, now that the fierce midsummer sun could hardly penetrate the dense roof of foliage, poor Lucy was fain to stay at home, waiting for that last melancholy journey which should carry her to her quiet rest in Osthorpe churchyard. The end was very near. The patient was not buoyed up by those delusive hopes which cheer the last days of some consumptive sufferers. She knew that her mother and sister had both been victims to the same disease, and she was prepared to die as they had died. Her husband had been over from Avonmore to see her more than once, and had shown himself deeply moved at the prospect of their last parting. He was not altogether heartless, and even in his selfishness clung with a feeble fondness to the wife he had once loved, who had once been bright and gay, and worthy of a husband's pride. "'We should have got on beautifully together if we'd been able to keep the wolf from the door, shouldn't we, Luce?' he asked, as if in apology for his failure in the domestic character. "'But when poverty is always staring one in the face, it's deuced hard to be a model husband and father.' "'I've had my faults as a wife, Charlie, dear,' said the invalid meekly. "'I don't pretend to have been perfect.' "'Well, perhaps you've been over-anxious, "'and you've nagged and worried a fellow a trifle more than was needful. "'But let bygones be bygones. "'I was always fond of you, Luce. "'I hope you know that.' "'Oh, I like to believe it, Charlie,' sighed the wife, "'clasping his hand in her wasted fingers.' "'You won't neglect the children when I'm gone, will you, dear?' "'Neglect them?' cried Green, as if he had always been the most devoted parent. "'Why, what else shall I have to live for?' 
oh but when you're running about to concerts to hear new singers my dear that is a matter of business i must attend to my profession oh charlie dear i wouldn't mind that if the profession would keep you and the children well dearest perhaps i have been a little volatile but i'm sobering down luce i have been deuced lonely and low-spirited since you left home the place was never anything but a hole at the best but it seemed ten times drearier when you were gone though you used to nag and whimper abominably now and again my pet you know you did i couldn't help saying what was in my mind churchill oh, don't call me churchill lovey or i shall think you're angry with me oh no charlie dear i'm not angry i'm only anxious about the children they're so young and you're such a young man to be left with such responsibility miss blake has promised to keep mattie at the school here she's getting on so nicely and she's so bright and it would be a pity for her to go back to avonmore where the air doesn't suit her half so well and where she'd have to muddle away her time looking after the little ones she's to board with the schoolmistress and to help her a little in keeping things straight and tidy and in a year or two she'll be a pupil teacher miss blake says and later on miss blake will get her a place somewhere as a nursery governess genteel drudgery said mr green contemptuously oh, well of course dear she'll have to work for a living but we must all do that in some way or other mr green sighed assenting to one of the hardest truths in nature he had an honest abhorrence of work and regimen of all kinds he sometimes thought that he ought to have been created a butterfly without having been obliged to endure the laborious preliminary stages of caterpillar and chrysalis he came and went almost as lightly as that picturesque insect as mrs green grew worse and the end was obviously approaching dulcie's visits to the cottage became more frequent lucy had attached herself to a mistress's daughter with an almost romantic warmth of feeling a visit from dulcie brightened her when her spirits were at the lowest ebb and dulcie seeing the cheering effect of her presence could not refuse to come here too on neutral ground she sometimes met aunt dora and this was an extra inducement they could talk in lucy's sick-room as freely as if they'd been alone and dulcie was made happy by discovering anew on each occasion that she had lost nothing of miss blake's affection one brilliant day at the end of june a day of surpassing brightness and beauty when the mere idea of dry-as-dust business or work of any kind seemed an insult to common sense dulcie went with a basket of magnificent cherries and a few choice roses to spend an afternoon with the invalid she had a volume of tennyson in her pocket for it was one of lucy's delights to hear poetry and dulcie took pleasure in reading to her matty the eldest girl had been withdrawn from school to assist in nursing her mother as the little servant had her hands full in attending to the smaller children and doing the housework when dulcie opened the cottage door all was silent below stairs she peeped into the kitchen and through the open window and saw the servant hanging out linen to dry at the bottom of the garden and then she went lightly up the steep narrow stair and was just going to open the door of the sick-room when the sound of a voice within set her heart beating violently 
Morton's voice, and no other, could have so moved her. She drew back and was going downstairs again when Matty came out of the children's bedroom, which was just behind the mother's room. "'Oh, if you please, miss, Mr. Blake is with mother. Will you come into our room if you don't want to see him?' said Matty, who was a precocious child and knew all about Dulcie's broken engagement. "'I think I'd better go away,' faltered Dulcie, handing the girl her basket. "'Please give your mother these flowers and cherries, with my love. I'll come another day.' She was turning to run downstairs, but Matty caught hold of her gown. "'Oh, pray, pray don't go, miss,' she exclaimed, her eyes filling with tears. "'Mother will be so disappointed. She loves to see you, and she says she has so few days left now.' That argument was irresistible. Dulcie stayed. "'Mr. Blake has been with Mother a good time already, and I don't suppose he'll be very much longer,' explained Matty. "'If you don't mind coming into our room, miss, and sitting down, he needn't see you at all.' The one sitting-room downstairs was the only way to the front door. Through this Morton must inevitably pass when he left the house. Dulcie therefore gladly consented to wait in the children's room. "'It's quite tidy, please, miss,' Matty said with a deprecating air. The room was the pink of neatness, brightened and smartened by various small efforts at artistic decoration on the part of Matty and the servant. Coloured prints from the illustrated papers had been pasted on the whitewashed wall. A few little bits of cheap crockery adorned the mantel-shelf and chest of drawers. The bed-linen was as white as snow. The muslin window-curtain looked as if it had been put up fresh that morning, and on the broad sill of the old-fashioned casement stood a large mug of stocks and carnations which filled the room with their perfume. Altogether, Matty's bedroom was a chamber in which the proudest lady of the land might be content to sit for a little while, perchance to meditate upon the homely graces of humble life. Dulcie turned to compliment the little girl upon the tidiness of her room, but found that Matty had gone. There was a door between the children's room and that of the invalid, and it had been left half open in order that the sweet summer air might circulate freely through the two rooms. In this wise, every word spoken in Lucy's room was distinctly audible to Dulcie, and the very first sentence she heard riveted her to the spot, forgetful of every consideration except the desire to hear more. "'Why did you keep these facts from me when I came to you at Avonmore?' asked Morton. Oh, "'Because he'd been good and generous to me, and I felt bound to shield him. But since I've been living here, through the long, wakeful nights, oh, that's one of the worst things in my illness, you know, sir, I get so little sleep. I've brooded and brooded till my brain felt on fire, and it has been dreadful to be obliged to keep silence about it all.' I felt that I must tell the truth to someone, whatever harm it might do. At one time I thought I would tell Mr. Haldimand, for as a minister I suppose he would be bound in honour not to tell again. But then it seemed as if you had the best right to know, and so I made up my mind to tell you everything before I was taken away. She paused for a little to recover her strength, while Morton sat quietly waiting, with calm, intent eyes fixed upon her face. "'Promise me one thing, sir,' said Lucy earnestly. "'Promise me that you will do nothing to bring sorrow upon Miss Courtney.' 
How can I promise that? Do you think I would willingly bring sorrow upon her? Do you suppose it is of my own free will I am parted from her? She was dearer to me than my life. I shall always honour and love her. But that love cannot alter the fatal past. If her father killed mine... Oh, he was deeply wronged. He loved his wife passionately. He was a slave to her. There's no sacrifice he wouldn't have made for her. There never was such a husband, and she ought to have given him back love for love. I say that, although I was so fond of her. She was thoughtless and false and cruel. Yes, though her natural disposition was all softness and sweetness, though she was kind and generous to every creature that came in her way, except her husband. To him she was harder than stone, and all because she was madly in love with your father. Oh, why did she not marry my father instead of Sir Everard? Why, indeed, that sin lies at Lady George's door. God knows how hardly she used her daughter, and what wicked lies were told about Mr. Blake. Somehow or other Lady George contrived to make Miss Alice think that your father was in love with someone else, a young widow who had just settled in our part of the country, and who was riding to hounds and making a great dash. There is no doubt this Mrs. Mountjoy set her cap at Mr. Blake, and it was common talk that they were going to be married. Anyhow, Miss Alice believed what her mother told her. We'd all gone to the south of France for Lady George's health, and Sir Everard had come after us, and Mr. Blake hadn't. For I believe Lord George and he had had words, and he wasn't allowed to visit at the house any more. And so Miss Alice gave way all at once in a pet, and the marriage was patched up suddenly, and they were married at the Protestant church at Cannes, and went off to Italy for the honeymoon. It was all done in a hurry. Lady George didn't give her daughter time to think what she was doing. I can see the little foreign church now, and the February sunlight shining on Miss Alice's lovely head. And I know I wondered to think how soon it was all done and over, and perhaps the peace and happiness of a lifetime thrown away forever. And so it proved to be. God help them both, poor things. "'When did Lady Courtney see my father again?' said Morton. "'Oh, not till she'd been married many months, and we came to Fairview after travelling about a great deal. Her spirits were very variable while we were going from place to place. Sometimes she was full of life and gaiety, and seemed delighted with everything she saw and everybody she met, and I think at such times Sir Everard was very happy.' Then, all of a sudden, she drooped and fretted in a secret way, which I know troubled him dreadfully. She'd spend hours alone in her room, crying as if her heart would break, and she would never tell him what it was that grieved her. She would confess to nothing except to being out of spirits. Then the sorrowful mood would pass away, and she'd be all brightness and life again. And so things went on till we came back to England, and she began her quiet married life at Fairview. "'And did she seem happy then?' asked Morton. "'No. The coming home upset her terribly. I suppose it was the idea of being so near her old lover, and hearing people talk about him at every hand's turn. 
he and sir everard had been college friends and were very much attached to each other i don't believe sir everard knew at this time that mr blake had been in love with miss alice lady george was such a clever manager and things had been kept so close anyhow sir everard invited his old friend to fairview and mr blake used to come as often as he liked and was always welcome many and many a time from the upstairs window where i sat at my work i have seen him and lady courtenay dawdling about the gardens looking at the roses and talking to each other much the same as they used in the old days when she was alice rothney and sir everard was so generous-minded and unsuspecting and trusted his wife so thoroughly i felt that it was all wrong i felt as if we were all standing on the brink of a precipice but what could i do you might have warned lady courtenay of her danger i did one day venture to say a few words she was very angry and told me i had forgotten my place and then in her old impulsive way she put her arms round my neck and kissed me and said it was she that was in the wrong and she sobbed in my arms poor darling and said she was a miserable woman believe me mr blake i did what i could in my poor way to hold her back from the gulf to which she was hurrying but fate was stronger than her will or mine and it was only her sad early death that saved her from ruin did she and my father ever meet in secret oh, yes sir that was the worst of it they met by accident at first and then by appointment heaven knows how it was i found it all out for nobody told me but i had got to watch her closely at that time full of fear for what was coming and i knew as well as possible when she used to go out for one of her lonely walks that she was going to meet mr blake before that time she had seldom walked beyond the grounds when she went out it was to drive or ride but now she had taken a fancy for walking alone two or three times a week sometimes she'd come home with a few wild flowers in her bosom and i knew the country well enough to be able to guess from the flowers she wore where she'd been there was a flower that i'd never seen anywhere but in tangley wood a particularly large dark harebell and i saw that she often brought home a little bunch of these she'd put them in one of the vases in her dressing-room and be as careful of them as if all the hothouse flowers in the room were worthless in comparison once i lost patience with her somehow and cried out in a sudden fit of passion oh did he pick em and she was dreadfully angry and asked me how i dared speak to her like that the sick woman stopped sinking back upon her pillow and smiled with a curiously bitter smile at some vivid memory of those past days <laughs> you see sir it never entered into my lady's head that i was flesh and blood like herself and had a heart to feel and suffer and had perhaps been foolish enough to fling it away where it wasn't wanted well sir things went on from bad to worse and soon they were not content with meeting two or three times a week but they must write to each other between whiles and the letters were to be left in a hollow oak in tangley wood just in the quietest loneliest part of the wood ever so far from any pathway or cattle track and i must fetch and carry for them oh i know it was wrong now and i knew it then 
but she coaxed and kissed and bribed me and seemed so miserable when i refused that i gave way and i used to carry her letters and fetch his and was a regular go-between and that was how the whole story came out how did it happen oh, i think sir everard's valet must have watched me and found out that i went to tangley wood he had wanted to keep company with me and i would refused and he turned spiteful so that he and i hardly spoke to each other well perhaps he fancied i'd had some other sweetheart and that i went to tangley wood to meet him i believe he told his master as much as this and that i was not a fit person to be about lady courtenay for one day when i went to fetch mr blake's letter sir everard followed me on horseback i saw him riding along the road ever so far behind me as i crossed the common but i didn't think he'd come my way and i'd no idea of danger you may fancy what i felt when i turned round after getting my letter and saw him riding quietly towards me under the beech boughs his horse's hoofs making no sound on the mossy turf he came upon me so sudden that i gave a little screech and hadn't enough presence of mind to try and hide the letter what letter is that he asked and i stammered out something about my lady oh you insolent hussy he cried how dare you mix lady courtney's name with your low intrigues and he bent over his horse's neck and snatched the letter out of my hand before i knew what he was doing if i hadn't known till that moment what a proud man he was i should have known it then by the look he gave me when i mentioned my lady's name there was no address upon the letter he tore it open and read it sitting there under the beech boughs and i never in my life saw anything so dreadful as the change that came over his face as he read he took no more notice of me than if i'd been a worm but dug his heels into his horse's sides and galloped off under the low boughs i thought he must have dashed his brains out as he rode in among the trees i guessed by the direction he'd taken that he was going back to fairview and i would have given ten years of my life if i could have got there before him but of course that was impossible lucy paused once more and lay back for a little while upon her pillow the dew of weakness on her pale forehead morton was too deeply moved for speech he handed her the glass of lemonade that stood on the little table by her side and sat quietly waiting for her to continue her narrative well, i ran till i came to the edge of the wood and then walked as fast as ever i could the rest of the way i went into the house through the offices and, and asked one of the men-servants if sir everard had come home the man said his master and lady courtenay were both in the morning-room i went to the door and stood outside listening and then hearing no sound of voices i went in softly and found no one in the room but my lady and she was lying on the ground in a dead faint i brought her to and then she told me there'd been a dreadful scene and implored me to take a letter straight to tangley manor and give it into mr blake's own hands it's a matter of life and death lucy she said you stood by me so far and you must stand by me to the end oh, how could i refuse her when she asked me poor dear when she looked at me so piteously with tears streaming down her pale cheeks i have not a friend in the world but you lucy she said 
and after that I would have gone through fire and water for her. So I told her to look sharp and write the letter, and I'd take it, come what might. And take it I did, after dark, while Sir Everard was at dinner, for he was such a proud man that he went through all the mockery of a set dinner, just for the sake of throwing dust in the servants' eyes, I suppose, and he was such a curious man that he took no trouble to watch me or my lady either. She went to her room directly she'd written her letter, and locked herself in, and there I found her when I came home after seeing your father at Tangley Manor. Did you tell my father anything? No, I only gave him the letter. That was all I had to do. He came out of the dining-room where he was sitting with his children round him after dinner, two little girls in white frocks and a boy. I suppose the boy was you. Yes, I was the boy. God help me, how well I can remember that evening hour with my father, and how he used to make himself a boy in order to amuse and interest us. Mr. Blake asked me if there was anything wrong, but I told him he would learn everything from the letter, and then I hurried away. That was the last time I ever saw his face, the bright manly face with its pleasant look that I knew so well. Just as I was on the threshold of the hall door, he caught my hand in his and wrung it warmly. "'God bless you, Lucy,' he said. "'Whatever may happen, I know you are true to us.' And then he tried to squeeze a banknote into my hand, but I wouldn't have it. I wouldn't have taken a sixpence from him if I'd been starving, though I loved him and honoured him with all my soul. But I shall never forget the touch of his hand or the sound of his voice that night. They've been a part of my life ever since." She was silent for a little while, as if her thoughts had fixed themselves upon the picture of the past, and her eyes had a dreamy look as she lay gazing at the bright square of blue sky framed by the fluttering leaves which wreathed the little casement. My lady kept her room all the next day. She was very low, poor thing, and inclined to be hysterical. I was with her all day, for indeed she was too ill to be left. Sir Everard went out directly after breakfast in his hunting clothes, and I wondered that he should go out hunting that day. He had not seen his wife since the previous afternoon. He did not come back to dinner, and before he came home my lady had got much worse, and we'd sent for Mr. Jebb, and he had advised sending to Highclere for old Dr. Newland. I don't like the look of things, he said. She hasn't as much strength as a canary bird. At what time did Sir Everard come home that evening? asked Morton, almost breathless in his eagerness. Well, I don't know the exact hour. I'm telling you the whole truth now, Mr. Blake, for good or evil. I'm keeping nothing back. It was late, ever so long after seven. It might have been eight or even later. But I was sitting by my poor mistress's side, and I was keeping no count of time, except to think that every minute was an hour in my anxiety for that feeble life which was fighting with death. Sir Everard came straight to his wife's room and took my place by the bed. He didn't look at me or speak to me. He seemed to see no one but her, and he took very little heed of anything that was said to him. He sat as still as a stone figure, till by and by the doctor beckoned him out of the room, 
and then he sat by the fire in the dressing-room just as still and lifeless so that i thought he was asleep till i went in to fetch something and then i saw his eyes fixed on the fire with an awful look in them at eleven o'clock the baby was born and at half-past sir everard was brought in to see his wife the doctors had very little hope of her i could see that by their faces but the monthly nurse a stupid old woman from highclere who had no merit except having been a nurse in ever so many county families pretended to take a cheerful view of my lady's condition and declared she would come through everything beautifully <laughs> the two doctors went downstairs to get a little refreshment and this chattering old woman was in the dressing-room with the baby the door between the two rooms standing ajar while sir everard sat by his wife's bed and i remained in the bedroom in attendance upon her he was very tender to her and seemed full of grief darling you are going to get better very soon he said oh, i hope not she answered i hope i am going to die oh, my dearest do not say that he said gently that is too cruel but i must say it everard she answered my life is all wrong i have offended against you though i'm not the vile creature you called me yesterday and i'm steeped in misery i hope god will be merciful and take me away from this wretched world my dearest he said you have your baby to live for your dear little daughter a new life will begin for you from to-night he knelt beside the bed and took her hand in his and kissed it but she snatched it away impatiently your hand is as cold as ice she cried i'm afraid of you well just at this moment i heard whisperings in the next room and then the old nurse exclaimed lord have mercy on us mr blake and then there was more whispering and then the word murdered sounded distinctly above all the rest my lady lifted herself up in the bed and gave a loud shriek walter blake is murdered she cried and you have done it she stretched her arm out pointing to her husband and then fell back upon her pillow in hysterics oh you wicked old woman i cried to the nurse run downstairs for the doctor i held my lady in my arms and tried to keep her quiet but she threw herself about on her pillow as if she wanted to beat herself to death and every now and then she gave a little cry like a creature that has got its death wound and feels life ebbing away the cries got fainter and fainter sir everard was on his knees by her side imploring her to listen to him to be reasonable to be merciful you did it she cried you are the murderer well, the doctors rushed into the room just after she said this old dr newland took her wrist in his hand and bent down to look at her eyes and i knew by the glance he gave mr jebb that all was over she never spoke again but turned her poor weary head restlessly from side to side and flung her arms about with the same dreadful restlessness till the end oh mr blake it was a terrible deathbed, and it was piteous to see her husband kneeling by her side 
and to hear him entreating her to be calm to be merciful to him promising that the rest of her days should be happy if she would but try to live for his sake promising to be her slave the very dirt under her feet if she would but live for him but prayers couldn't lengthen her short life it was easy to see how her strength was ebbing with every restless movement in that dreadful death struggle i think she was sensible to the very last the last look she turned upon her husband is in my mind to-day a look full of horror he did not deny that he'd killed my father said morton interrogatively oh, he may have taken her words for mere raving and have thought it useless to contradict her oh, but surely had he been able to do so he would have declared his innocence of such a crime that would have been easy to do were he ever so guilty you've no right to think any the worse of him because he let his dying wife's words go by like the raving of fever which nobody ever tries to argue with his old mind may have been taken up by the thought that she was dying oh, mr blake i want to be just to him to be merciful to him on my deathbed there was a time when i thought my lady spoke the truth that night that the mystery of your father's death was made clear to her in her last agony but to-day i want to see things calmly and reasonably i thought it was my duty to tell you all i knew for i misled you that day at avonmore i wanted to shield sir everard as far as i could for he's been a good friend to me he turned me off after his wife's death but he told me that if ever i was in poverty i was to apply to him and he would help me because lady courtenay had been fond of me and after my marriage when green and i were in sore trouble for our rent i wrote to sir everard and he sent me ten pounds and he told me he would send me the same sum quarterly as long as i wanted help and god knows how my children and i would have lived without that forty pounds a year so you see sir i am deeply beholden to sir everard just as i am beholden to you for all your goodness to me and it's only been the trouble of my mind that has made me tell you all this you have done very right to tell me i have long been tormented by suspicions of the truth and it's well for me to know all that can be known one thing i will tell you for your comfort i shall never try to bring sir everard courtenay to justice though i firmly and thoroughly believe that he is my father's murderer for his daughter's sake he is safe from my revenge but i will unravel the web of his mystery i will make myself master of his secret and only when i stand face to face with him and charge him with his crime shall i feel that i have done my duty as a son and you will not try to win miss courtenay for your wife no that would be an unholy alliance there came a faint little murmur like a cry of pain from the next room but morton took no heed of it for just at the same moment a man's firm tread sounded on the stair and mr haldeman's cheery voice exclaimed ever so much better this heavenly day i hope mrs green End of chapter 41